Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part two of our series on The GOAT. That's right. It's Halloween season. And for some reason, all of our Halloween episodes so far have been livestock based. And this is uh, part two of our look at the goat, a creature that in reality is, uh, you know, pr- pretty, pretty gentle. Uh, nothing too weird about the goat for the most part. Nothing nefarious, certainly. But within the larger traditions of mythology and folklore, various other connotations take over and kind of spin out of control until you have ultimately uh, demonic goats, uh, half goat, half human hybrids that uh, may not have the best intentions at heart. And then also even a few, uh, you know, cinematic incarnations, horror movie incarnations of the goat. Uh, We mentioned uh, the witch in the first episode, of course, and Joe and I were trying to, uh, off mic, we're trying to think of other spooky goats in films, or even just spooky goat people in films, and there aren't maybe a ton of them. Like, there are more, way more killer cat movies and certainly killer dog movies than there are killer goat movies. Well, it depends on if you include goat-headed demons, then that Mm -hmm. massively expands the range. Uh, And as we were discussing, there is one uh, Italian horror movie that has a really glorious goat costume that you only see for a couple of seconds, but it's in the church. Yes, I believe that's a 1989 film. It's been a while since I've seen it, but uh, it was produced by uh, Dario Argento and a few others. And uh, it's it's quite an interesting film, kind of a lower budget occult film that was perhaps partially inspired by the name of the Rose. Like what if the name of the Rose Hmm. um, had one of the actors from the name of the Rose, but then also a demonic goat man uh, roaming about? Oh, okay. Yeah. And of course, The Devil Rides Out, which we discussed on Weird House Cinema earlier in the year, that has a great goat man in it as well. But they're not Wonderful. as... Wonderful. Big old goat boy at a party. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, probably one of the, the better ones uh, committed to the screen. But you, you don't see them a lot. Um, I think I've mentioned before, I think the first cinematic vision of like goat-obsessed cultists was the uh, movie adaptation of Dragnet. 
Um, this was, what, I think, a 1987 film. Dan Aykroyd, uh, heavily involved in that. I think Christopher Plummer uh, is in it as well and plays one of the cultists. And so there's, you know, there's scenes of uh, some sort of a Hollywood black mass thing going on and people wearing goat leggings and uh, uh-huh. goat heads and so forth. You're saying that's the first one you remember seeing? That's the first one I remember seeing as a yeah. as a kid because you know that was I think essentially supposed to be a family movie though I remember there being plenty of elements in it that were maybe not so family friendly uh, but you know it, it, it was the eighties oh and Seth just uh, uh, poked in to mention of course Pan's Labyrinth uh, Guillermo del Toro's film which does have a fabulous. Uh, Pan incarnation as well, as well as some other just fabulous creatures. Um, uh, definitely not a family movie that one either. It's got some some brutal violence and some very you know real world themes, but also so a fantastic mythological world. Yeah, everybody remembers the the monster with the eyes in its hands in that movie, even though Pan's in the title. Yeah, it's it's not called Eyes in Palms Labyrinth. <laughs> <laughs> For many of you though, when you think cinematic goat men. Um, imagine for an entire generation of people, there's one particular portrayal you're going to think of, and that's going to be James McAvoy's 2005 portrayal of Mr. Tumnus in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I never saw that uh, adaptation. No, well, I I have a feeling they'll get around to it. Uh, It's it's, it's a good one. uh, Rewatched it recently. It holds up pretty well. It's got some great creatures in it. And of course, in addition to James McAvoy, we have uh, a, a tremendous uh, Tilda Swinton performance as the, as the White Witch. So mm. those two elements are alo- alone are enough reason to check it out. Does the movie have Turkish delight in it? Oh, of course. You can't not have Turkish delight in it. So <laughs> I, I was thinking about Mr. Tumnus because we were talking about satyrs and fauns in the last episode, and I realized that this is a ob- pretty obvious modern fictional presentation of particularly a fawn in this situation. He's described as a fawn. Uh, of course, appears, appears in C.S. Lewis's Narnia book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and uh, various adaptations of that work. And despite all of the various connotations of the satyr and the fawn that Lewis was obviously quite aware of, Mr. Tumnus is a rather compassionate figure and not at all a nasty old he-goat. Uh, about the worst thing you can say about him is that he's technically working for the White Witch. He's technically prepared to poison one of the children and then deliver her to the White Witch. But then he quickly betrays the White Witch to help the children of Earth. Mm, yeah. So while he's he's not really portrayed for the most part, as a sexual being. Uh, still, James McAvoy's <laughs> 2005 portrayal uh, is perhaps, has perhaps a little bit of unintended allure to it. I think it's one of those situations where even if you try and strip those elements away from the visual satyr or fawn, if you then recreate the fawn, especially using an actual person, an actual actor, you cannot help but evoke some of its symbolic essence. Hmm. Lewis, by the way, also wrote a poem titled The Satyr, uh, which also seems to dwell on the creature's more sublime qualities. Um, this is one that he wrote much earlier uh, as a, an adolescent atheist, as pointed out by Joe R. Christopher in a 2016 paper titled C.S. Lewis's Two Satyrs, referring to this poem and then to Mr. Tumnus. Uh, I, I thought thought I might read just a little of this poem. You can find the whole thing at um, allpoetry.com, uh, but it begins like this. When the flowery hands of spring forth their woodland riches fling, through the meadows, through the valleys, goes the satyr caroling. From the mountain and the moor, forest green and ocean shore, all the fairy kin he rallies, making music evermore. See the shaggy pelf doth grow on his twisted shanks below, and his dreadful feet are cloven, though his brow be white as snow. And it goes on from there. Uh, it's, a, it's, 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 a, it's a fun little, little poem. Uh, now, Christopher's write-up is, uh, I, th- I think, a pretty interesting analysis, as long as you're in for sort of, a, a, at times, a psychosexual interpretation of a Narnia book, which I realize is not everyone's <laughs> cup of tea. But, um, but still, I think it's quite interesting. And he points out that while Mr. Tumnus is largely desaterized, de if you will, uh, mm-hmm. there are still hints of the basic nature he is 
overcoming and being civilized and so forth. Uh, mentions of times when, quote, and this is from the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, quote, the woods were green and old Salinas on his fat donkey would come to visit them and sometimes Bacchus himself and then the streams would run with wine instead of water and the whole forest would give itself up to jollification for weeks on end. Jollification. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Christopher uh, ultimately writes in this uh, paper, quote, If one compares Lewis's two satyrs, one finds that both are about the split in the male human. Partly he is led by reason, by wisdom and high thoughts, by family, mores, and philia. And partially he is driven by sexual or bestial or devilish and or traitorous impulses. The satyr attracts fairy maidens by his unhappiness. Perhaps he is unhappy because women flee from him, but more likely, as suggested before, he is unhappy because he has self-divided himself about his relationship to women. The fawn, Mr. Tumnus, shows that a man can control his impulses, his animal or devilish side, and treat a woman well. Huh. Well, I don't know quite what to make of that because I haven't read this book since I was a kid. Yeah, I... I Listen to the audiobook version of it in recent years, so it's a little fresher on my mind as well. But I'd love to hear it from everyone out there because I know we have a lot. There are a lot of people out there who either grew up on these books or these movies and maybe uh, thought one way about them at one point in their life and thought another way much later. Uh, but Mr. Tumnus is still there, standing essentially naked in the snow. I think he's he's wearing a scarf in the movie version, but otherwise <laughs> looks very naked, uh, except you know for the goat fur. <laughs> Okay, well, in the previous episode, we were talking about the question of why the cultural association, especially stemming from Christian continental Europe, between goats and devils or between goats and wickedness, where does this association come from, especially given that it's not universal, of course, not like every culture thinks goats are evil. So what are the origin points and I think we can possibly find some points of inspiration for this uh, mental link between goats and demons in the biblical tradition itself, going all the way back to the Torah. Uh, one of the most prominent appearances of goats in the Hebrew Bible is the prescription for the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is the holiest day of the year in Judaism. It is a day dedicated to the ritual cleansing of sin. And the ritual is described in the book of Leviticus, chapter 16. As a prelude, uh, the Lord is talking to Moses, and the Lord tells Moses that Aaron, the high priest, uh, he, he can't just come into the presence of the Ark of the Covenant at any time, or God may appear in a cloud upon the cover of the Ark and kill him. And this is coming after uh, God has already struck out from the Ark and, and killed people who did the wrong thing with it, who maybe brought strange fire before it. Instead, at an appointed time, the high priest will bathe his body in water and will put on special holy vestments, and then he can enter into the presence of the Lord, or the, the presence of the Ark, to give offerings. Uh, and then regarding the Day of Atonement, we're told the following. This is from the NRSV, beginning uh, chapter 16, verse 5. He shall take from the congregation of the Israelites two male goats for a purification offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a purification offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and Aaron shall cast lots on the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and offer it as a purification offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. And in the tradition of the second temple, as uh, described in the Mishnah, this ritual is understood to mean that one goat is sacrificed to uh, the Lord for purification, and the other goat becomes a scapegoat. That word scapegoat in the English language, uh, I believe, comes from the William Tyndale translation of the Bible. Uh, William Tyndale, uh, by the way, uh, executed for heresy, even though he gave us most of the English translation that would end up in the King James Bible. Oh, wow. 
Uh, but so that that English word scapegoat there is an attempt to translate the concept of the goat for Azazel from the Day of Atonement. So this is a goat that is ritually designated as a vessel for the sins of the Jewish people, and then after being uh, after the the sins of the people are placed upon it, it is driven out into the wilderness, perhaps to fall off a cliff and die. So what does it mean to say that the scapegoat was for Azazel? Well, rabbis and scholars have interpreted this phrase in a number of different ways over the ages. So one interpretation is that Azazel is the name of the place to which the goat was sent, uh, specifically maybe a rocky, desolate mountaintop or a land of impassable cliffs. Uh, so, so there are different linguistic interpretations. But other commentaries have held that Azazel was a proper name, the name of a supernatural entity or power. And obviously, this interpretation is more relevant to what we're talking about today. In this reading, Azazel is some kind of demon or fallen angel, a spirit of defilement and wickedness haunting the desert. And the goat on which the high priest places the sins of the people is sent out for him. And so despite the fact that in this ritual, actually both the Lord and this demonic figure each get one goat, the scapegoat, the goat that carries the sins of the people away to meet a filthy devil in the wasteland, I think might be the more salient image, kind of in the same way that um, even in uh, most early Christian literature that, that gets into the idea of the afterlife, descriptions of hell tend to be more vivid than descriptions of heaven, just because of, I don't know, certain features of human psychology. Yes, well, so I, I guess in a lot of these uh, traditions in which hell is described too, uh, those description, very descriptions of hell are kind of the, uh, oftentimes one of the only available avenues into which, into which you can pour your dark imagination. Uh, like yeah. if you want to, if you want to create paint devils and demons and grotesque hybrids, uh, there are certain approved areas of interest, uh, generally religious or certain later on in Western traditions, you know, the mythological realm, uh, and mm -hmm. paint whatever you want, as long as you're, <laughs> you're depicting one of these stories that's important to a given culture. Right. Yeah. You could use the dark imagination. It for allegedly at least the purpose of discouraging sin, saying, right. look what will happen to you. Uh, though it's interesting, you could argue that that's the same principle on which exploitation movies are made. It's like, yeah. well, we have important subject matter to talk about here. This is a film educating people about the dangers of, of using marijuana. Uh, never mind that it's also just an excuse to show a bunch of uh, debauchery and, and party scenes and stuff. You know, the other thing about this scapegoat scenario, and um, I was thinking, it kind of matches up with some stuff I was thinking about recently because I, uh, I started using a new uh, meditation practice that, um, that I was taught uh, called, um, it's, it's rather simple, it's just called um, uh, Leaves on a Stream, where you take a particular thought and you sort of externalize yourself from that thought. You realize that you're thinking that thought. And you imagine yourself at a stream, you imagine yourself taking that thought, placing it on the leaf, and letting it float down the stream away from you. And, it, hmm. and, and that's all there is to it. You know, it's just, it's a very simple exercise of, of removing yourself from a thought and then sending that thought away. Um, hmm. You know, not trying to avoid thinking that thought or avoid feeling that feeling, but acknowledging it and then letting it go. And I was, and as I was, after using it and finding it rather helpful the last couple of weeks, I was thinking, well, I wonder how much of this is present in various uh, religious practices throughout history. The idea, the simple concept of like acknowledging something and then sending it away. Uh, it, it seems like it, it may line up in some ways with this sort of practice as well. Yeah, I can totally see that. Though, again, I, I think it's interesting the specifics of the, the imagery here, which is mm -hmm. that the the goat is being sent away for Azazel, for this this demon in, in the desert. And uh, you can obviously see how this, this standard tradition uh, of Yom Kippur could later give rise to a mental association between goats and the creatures of hell, because the goat is being sent out to meet this this devil. Yeah, what does he do with these goats? Does he, do they just hang out with him? Are they, do they morph into strange goat creatures? Does he eat them? Uh, either way, it would make you maybe think twice about seeing a, a feral goat in the wild. 
um, mm. which is something to think about. I mean, even though these are domesticated species, you'll end up with feral goats out there. And I can imagine there might be something kind of haunting about a feral domestic species that you encounter. It's kind of like a, a ghost town or a haunted house. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I also want to be clear that the overall format of the scapegoat ritual is not unique to Jewish tradition. The scapegoat rituals of various kinds are used in a number of ancient cultures, in many instances not involving goats. For example, in ancient Greece, I think especially like uh, like Athens and Ionia, would sometimes banish human scapegoats to appease the gods and avoid some kind of bad fate, such as in the festival of uh, Thargalia, which was a festival of Apollo, where it said that often a sort of a a couple, like a a man and a woman uh, who were despised in some way or who were considered physically ugly or for some reason were not wanted by the people would be selected and then they would be paraded around the town and they would be uh, whipped with with branches like uh, branches of trees or pieces of vegetation that I think was supposed to symbolize a kind of transference of of guilt or uh, or impurity of some kind from the people onto the couple, and then they would be banished outside of the city, uh, exiled, presumably to die outside in the wilderness. Well, we're not we're not advising anyone try that out. What <laughs> <laughs> that that doesn't that doesn't just doesn't sound helpful to anybody. Uh, no, I yeah I, I think Thargalia uh, we can we can safely put to rest. Yeah. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed a 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices... Well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, 
personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, I've got another biblical association between goats and sin or evil or impurity. This one comes from the New Testament. This comes from Christian traditions. Uh, Some people will probably be familiar with the story of the sheep and the goats in the New Testament. One passage to zero in on here is in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25. And for context, this is part of the so-called Olivet Discourse, which is a discourse in which Jesus is giving a bunch of uh, teachings that are full of apocalyptic statements about what is going to happen when the Son of Man comes. And these appear in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, Mark, Luke, and and Matthew. And uh, they've got different kinds of predictions. Uh, You know, there might be like earthquakes and disasters and uh, and the destruction of, uh, of the temple and so forth. But one of the things described happening when the Son of Man comes in glory uh, begins in Matthew chapter 5, verse 31. And uh, to quote from the NRSV, it reads, When the Son of Man comes in glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people, one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at the left. I definitely remember growing up hearing this in church. And I mean, on one level, it's like, okay, he's separating people, like good from bad. But I I never really understood like the the sheep-goat duality. Uh, mm-hmm. aspect of this. I'm I'm kind of like, well, a sheep and a goat. I mean, I've been around both of them at petting zoos and it's not like one is grosser than the other or anything, <laughs> or that one's sweeter than the other. They're both domesticated farm animals and just one, the goat, has a lot more personality than the sheep, in my opinion. I remember being confused too. It's actually one of a number of uh comparisons or parables or stories uh in in the New Testament that kind of don't make sense if you're not familiar with like an ancient agricultural context. Like tons of these uh, stories are about agriculture and like, I don't know what reaping and sowing are and stuff when I'm a little kid. I'm not a farmer. So I like, I don't know what to think about this stuff. Yeah, but a lot of it ends up just being picked up anyway. And people are like, yeah, you want to be a sheep or a goat? Of course you want to be a sheep. And you might go, yeah, of course I want to be a sheep. But then again, you might ask, well, is there a third option? Is there another (laughs) farm animal I could be in this scenario? Well, as best I can tell, I think it is just a point of – the point is really about the separation. But to explain the rest of the story, so the the sheep go on the right hand and the Son of Man will bless them. uh, And they're going to ask, why are we being blessed? What did we do? And Jesus goes on uh, to give these famous statements. He says, quote, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. And then they're going to ask, when did we do any of that? And then the son of man will say to them, truly, I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it to me. 
and then we get the same answer inverted for the goats at the left hand. Why are they at his left? Uh, because they didn't do any of that stuff for him. And they protest, well, they never denied him food or drink or comfort. And, uh, quote, then he will answer them truly, I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And then it says, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So in this story, the sheep are representing the righteous who will inherit the kingdom of God, and the goats are representing the unrighteous who must depart into destruction to be annihilated when the Son of Man comes in power. And so I I was thinking, why goats here? Uh, I didn't find an answer to this that I found super authoritatively convincing. Uh, I read one uh, like evangelical theological blog post that had an interesting idea. Uh, I don't know how valid this was, but at least it, it suggested that when you're maintaining mixed herds of goats and sheep, which I do think was actually common in the Levant at this time, goats reproduce faster than sheep. So herdsmen mm-hmm. would have to regularly cull young male goats to maintain the correct balance of their flocks. And if they didn't regularly cull the young male goats, the goats would reproduce faster and they would take over. There would be too many of them in the flock. Mm, okay. Well, that's, that that seems to match up with some of what we were talking about in the last episode about uh, uh, the sex life of the goat. But I would say the question of like what is the underlying agricultural reasoning about the goats mm-hmm. and the sheep here, that may be true, but I, I don't know. I'm still interested in this. I feel like there's got to be a good answer out there I just haven't found yet. Yeah, yeah. This certainly, if we have any people with with herding experience or or vaster herding ag knowledge, uh, write in and let us know uh, what's what's a good reason to separate the the goats from the sheep. Now, at this point, I thought we might get into some other examples of folklore of the goat and the he goat, uh, and perhaps some more religious uh, traditions and mythological traditions of the goat. Uh, some of these are going to match up and, and be more in line with some of the demonic goat ideas that we've discussed thus far. Some are going to go in an entirely different direction. Uh, we're going to get a little bit into essentially divine goats at times. Uh, one example that came up in, in my research, this is from uh, an 18th century folklorist by the name of John Brand. Brand wrote, quote, There is a popular superstition relative to goats. They are supposed never to be seen for 24 hours together, and that once in that space they pay a visit to the devil in order to have their beards combed. This is common both in England and Scotland. What? <laughs> I don't think I even understand what that's claiming. What what is it? What do you, did, how did you understand the never seen for 24 hours together? This I took to to be about this sort of the the nature of the goat. Like the goat okay. is going to get around, it's going to explore, it's going to climb a little bit. It's going to poke around and see what's available to eat. And therefore, I'm imagining a herdsman might maybe have a little more of a time keeping track of the goats. And it'd be like, well, I think one's missing. And then you find him and you're like, okay, now we have all the goats. I wonder where that goat went. Well, Mm. it was probably just the other side of the hill or was poking around under something. But what if it was visiting the devil? And what would a goat? I feel like there's kind of a, this this is one of those uh, folk beliefs that maybe is a little tongue in cheek, you know, like Mm. why would a goat actually go to the devil? What do they have that the devil can offer them? Well, uh, their beards need combed every now and then, right? (laughs) Get that nice uh, sheen. Um, so I don't know. I found it, I found it more amusing than illuminating. It's like when the dog just gets back from the groomers, it's, it's the, the goat just comes back, but he's been with the devil. He looks luxurious. Yeah. I guess it's something about a domesticated species that it, if it it has a little bit of a, it still has some of that adventurous spirit to it. You know, we often have, uh, supernatural ideas about what it does and where it goes and what its intentions are, such as with the cat. Uh, the, the cat is going to want to go off and do its own things. Where does the cat go? Uh, well, what is it up to? Uh, that sort of thing. Now, uh, an interesting paper I was looking at is uh, was a paper titled A Note on Goats, Defoe on Crusoe's Devil from 1998. And this is by Aaron Santiso. Uh, this, of course, is referring to um, uh, Robinson Crusoe by Daniel Defoe. Uh, mm-hmm. Robinson Crusoe, not a work that I think I've ever read, um, but I've certainly, I think, seen various film or even cartoon uh, adaptations of it over the years. Maybe I read it in school, but it's been a very long time. Uh, I think when I was a kid, I had a children's abridged and adap- uh, adapted mm-hmm. version of it, which is weird to think about. <laughs> 
I think that may have been how I encountered it as well. Uh, yeah. But uh, th- this was still an interesting paper to, to read. I didn't know there were, I, or I did not remember there being any goats in it, but, um, but that seems to be the case. Uh, the author here writes that by the 18th century, old goat and goat foot were popular euphemisms for Satan and the devil, was said to uh, take the form of a goat, and the image of Satan was often depicted as that of a robed, goat-headed man uh, that kind of became the staple image. Mm-hmm. But apparently, uh, to explain the title of the work, there is a bit in Robinson Crusoe where he encounters goats. And at the same time, Daniel Defoe wrote an entire book on the perceived presence of Satan in global affairs, the political <laughs> history of the devil from 1726. Funny with that title, that could be either a really interesting book of uh, historical scholarship or that could be a wild conspiracy tract. <laughs> yeah, it's another work I've not I've not read. I only have just a... Uh, you know, a, a brief brief summary is understanding of it, but um, at any rate, I thought it was worth mentioning. Uh, real quick, a couple of goat man type creatures that seem related in some cases to the the satyrs and the fauns that pop up in the uh, encyclopedias of Carol Rose. There's the Bachman. This is a goat man of German folklore used as a nursery bogey to keep kids away from the forest. So mm. don't go near the forest; then the Bachman might get you. And of course, in, in imagining a Germanic goat man, we of course can't help but think of uh, uh, the Krampus creatures as well. Oh yeah, I was gonna I was gonna bring up Krampus, but also uh, as a brief refresher on on the idea of a nursery bogey, this was an idea we explored in our series on Ginny Green Teeth from a few mm-hmm. October's back, uh, which is a a famous nursery bogey. I think the the concept of a nursery bogey is a monster that is specifically designed to warn children away from some type of dangerous behavior. Yeah. And we actually mentioned uh, nursery bogeys in the last episode, uh, talking about... um, Goya. Goya. Yeah, talking about Goya and the one bit bit about the, uh, you know, watch out for the boogeyman. It was both a, it was kind of a takedown of of parents engaging in supernatural ideas to scare obedience into their children, and at the same time, like, preparing them for adulthood full of supernatural beliefs. Another creature that Rose mentions is the Bokanak, uh, which is described, she describes as, quote, a vast menacing goat, and it's said to, to terrify travelers on lonely Irish roads at night, which I think is interesting and makes me think of, um, of the experience, uh, even today, of encountering either a feral goat or a wandering goat on the roadside and seeing it illuminated in your headlights. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously wouldn't be the same situation on lonely Irish roads in, uh, in, in, in olden times, but still, perhaps if you had some sort of a lantern and uh, your, your lantern uh, light caught the eyes of the goat just right, might be a bit creepy. Now, sticking to the British Isles for a minute, I came across an interesting uh, goat-related creature known as the Gleistig or the Green Maiden a malevolent fairy from Scottish Gaelic mythology. Uh, According to the Oxford Reference Encyclopedia, this monster sometimes appears as a beautiful woman, but other times as a half-woman, half-goat, and she seduces a male victim, brings him, lures him to her hideaway near a secluded pool, and then when they are alone, she slashes his throat and drinks all his blood. And I thought this was interesting because it uh, echoes the idea of goats as sort of a a sexual danger in some way, except usually it's like the idea of a a lusty he-goat that is Mm -hmm. that kind of uh, mythological threat. Here, instead, it is uh, an evil fairy woman who, who seduces male victims. Interesting. Though it's also noted that in other variations, the the Gleistig is not dangerous and is a helpful creature who protects children and the elderly. That's an interesting one. Yeah, I hadn't heard of that one. Now, in Norse tradition, we uh, have a pair of giant goats that are uh, rather famous. They are Tangrishner and Tangdrosner. They are two giant goats that pull the chariot of Thor across the skies in Norse mythology. I may have butchered their names a little bit, uh, but those are translated as Tooth Nasher and Tooth Grinder. And these are depicted in the latest Thor movie as well as screaming goats. Screaming like the goats from the internet video? Yeah, yeah, just screaming the whole time. It's pretty amusing. (laughs) There's some amusing stuff in that film. 
Now, another creature I came across is the, the Yale or Centicore. This is a mythical beast found in European mythology and, and ultimately European heraldry described by, by Pliny the Elder. Uh, depictions vary from goat-like to more of an, more like an antelope. And the descriptions have been linked to varying creatures from distant lands. Uh, so this is where we kind of get into, we, we mentioned this in the last episode, when you're dealing with either mythological creatures, folkloric creatures, or accounts of actual creatures in distant lands, the translation of them may take on different forms. The, it might end up being a little more goat-like. It might be more horse-like in their examples where it might take on the forms of other animals. Uh, you know, it, it reminds me too of, of, of Europeans going out into the world uh, and discovering new fruits and thinking, mm-hmm. oh, what kind of apple is this? Oh, we will call <laughs> it the pineapple. Uh, uh-huh. Like, what kind of strange goat is this? We will interpret this uh, idea of a new creature by using the goat as a base point. Now, another creature that I read about is the uh, Zlatorog. This is a white, golden-horned goat in the traditions of Slovenia. And the basic idea here is that this is a fabulous... I mean, it's not only is it a big goat, uh, almost like a ram-like creature, it also has horns that are gold, uh, presumably real gold. So, of course, hunters want it. Hunters go out, they chase it around, but this is a smart creature. This is a, uh, this is a, uh, a savvy creature, and it may well lead you over a ravine where you fall to your death. Um, the creature is also known as or is translated to just being called gold horn, and it also seems to be the mascot of a Slovenian beer. So uh, if, uh, if anyone out there is a, is a fan of... Uh, of international beers, or if you have any uh, drinkers of this particular beer, I would love to, to hear your thoughts on it. I looked it up on Beer Advocate. It has a score of 73 there, which uh, I, I, I guess that's okay. It says okay right here, 73. Okay, must be an okay beer. Rob, I have had this beer. What? Oh, do tell. I, I, well, I drank this when I was in Slovenia. Ah. Um, yeah, so in Slovenia, I don't know if it's still this way, but when I was there... It seemed to me there were basically two types of beer. There was union, which is spelled like the English word union, and mm-hmm. there was Lashko. And uh, I recall thinking that it seemed like the bars were divided by which beer they sold. I don't know if that's really true, but it seemed that way to me. So you'd have like an union bar and a Lashko bar. And it's like, do you want to go to the place that has Lashko or do you want to go to the the other place? Uh, and for whatever reason, I ended up on the Lashko side. So I was drinking those. Uh, I, I think I only had a couple of onions. You didn't have enough to fall into a ravine. That's the important no, part. No, no. <laughs> uh, to be fair, I know I drank Lashko. I don't know if I... If it was the Zlatarog um, variety, I think it probably was because it looks like that's one of their their flagship beers. But I can't be positive it was. I mean, because it looks like there's also like just you know Lashko Light and stuff like that. But uh, I think I had this one. I definitely had plenty of Lashko. <laughs> awesome. Well, I, I, that, that's that's fabulous. Question answered. But I, then, then of course, if anyone out there has more experience with uh, with this beer, uh, write in. Let us know. Yeah, I, I would appreciate it, uh, Slovenian listeners to clarify my memories. Are there actually Lashko bars and Union bars, or is that is that just uh, all mixed up in my head? Another thing about drinking in Slovenia was I remember everywhere I went, people would show up with wine in unlabeled jugs. They'd just have these mm-hmm. glass jugs of, uh, you, you had red wine and you had white wine, and it wasn't like, oh yeah, it's this vineyard, this vintage, it's just a jug of wine. I don't know where it's from. Yeah, in, in travel, one of the, the the many things that's great about traveling is, of course, finding out what if there is a local drinking tradition, uh, what is it, and if there is a local beer or a national beer, what is that? Not being a beer enthusiast, they all tend to kind of taste the same to me. Uh, but mm. I, I, there's something that's kind of kind of fun about traveling to a place and then having the the, the national beer of that particular country. I also remember in Slovenia a very uh, fruity type of uh, liqueur called Slivovitz that I think the innkeeper where I stayed would would like give us in the morning. So <laughs> <laughs> you start your day. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. 
Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed a 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road, the steeper the better because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, I got another uh, goat god type figure. So in pre-Christian Basque mythology of the, the Basque people, there was a deity known as Mari, uh, M-A-R-I, that was sort of a, a queen of the gods, a, a supreme female deity uh, in, the, in the Basque pantheon. And she would be depicted as like, uh, you know, flying around and uh, through the air in a chariot, but also sometimes as uh, riding on a ram. Well, according to the Rutledge Dictionary of Gods and Goddesses, Devils and Demons uh, by Manfred Lurker, 2005, 
one of the representatives for the physical forms representing the power of the the god or, or the goddess Mari is this figure called Ockerbelts, which means black billy goat. He he looks exactly how he sounds. He is a billy goat with a black coat, and this goat spirit is thought to be a protector of people's flocks, of their livestock. Lurker writes, quote, People who want their animals to do well turn to him for help. In earlier times, a black billy goat was kept in the farmsteading to protect the herd from plague and sickness. In the 16th and 17th centuries, he was venerated as a god by witches and wizards. Sacrifices were made to him, and dance formed part of the ritual in his honor. Mm. So Ockerbelts is cool. Ockerbelts we like. <laughs> it seems this is another example of uh, a, a goat, uh, a, a spiritual goat creature that is not a demonic at all, from what I can tell, except maybe viewed you know, through like a hostile Christian lens on the Basque mythology. But within the Basque mythology, it seems like, yeah, the, this is just a this is a good thing that protects your flocks. Yeah, I mean, the, flo- the flocks are life. Yeah, this this is something that it really has uh, has also been a part of of all these episodes we've looked at uh, this uh, Halloween season regarding domesticated animals. It's like these are the lifeblood of the people who raised them, and so threats to those uh, those animals, be they real threats or perceived threats or supernatural interpretations of threats, uh, you know, it's 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 serious business. Uh, life and death depends upon it. And this would be by no means the only mythological or spiritual goat form that is beneficent in nature, that is sacred or good or holy, uh, or considered so by the people who believe in it. Not all of the goat-based mythical creatures are are malevolent wild things that want to want to destroy you. Yeah, and this brings us to the the sacred goats of China. In China, we have it in Chinese traditions, we have at least one really special goat in the form of the Zixi, which uh, you might think of as a kind of unicorn. I think this is, word is often translated as unicorn. Mm. Um, of course, as we've, as we've discussed uh, on the show previously in our episodes about unicorns, even in Western traditions, there's a lot of drift regarding the unicorn. Sometimes the unicorn is more goat-like. Sometimes it's more horse-like. And, mm. and it's often used uh, in later in Christian traditions as, um, as, as kind of an incarnation of Jesus, uh, so, mm-hmm. the, the, so in these, in many of these traditions, the unicorn is both goat-like and Christ-like, which is in stark contrast to these demonic ideas concerning the goat. So, that's something that's worth keeping in mind as we go forward: is that you don't even have to remove yourself from Christian traditions in the West to find uh, some examples of holy goats. Now, with the Zishi here, it uh, it's essentially like a dark, shaggy goat or perhaps an ox. Again, we see this kind of sh- drift occur with any of these creatures. Like, is it does it have the body of a goat? Does it have the body of an ox? Uh, I've, I looked at various images of statues and depictions, and some of them I included a picture here of one for you, Joe, that I think looks very goat-like. It clearly has mm-hmm. goat-like legs, even if its head is more fantastic. But then there's another one that looks very much kind of like a bulldog or like a cat. Uh, so it has a totally different morphology going on, at least to, to my non-expert eye. But these are noble, divine creatures. Uh, so uh, so again, uh, in, in that sense, they are more like the Western idea of the unicorn. I'm going to say, at least for these two pictures you attach for me, these are good boys. Yeah. Yeah. These are good boys who deserve a good scratch. Now, in the Chinese city of Guangzhou, uh, there is also the legend of the five goats. So this is a founding myth regarding the five immortals riding to uh, the spot of the city's founding and bringing the knowledge of rice cultivation there. And when Mm -hmm. the immortals leave, according to the myth, they left their goats behind, and these goats became the stones of the Taoist temple of the five immortals there. And there is also, in, in this city, in Guangzhou, there's a, a splendid statue of the five goats atop a hill in, uh, in this expansive garden in the city, uh, which, which I've, I have visited. And I actually marched to the top of this hill and got to see the statue of the goats there. I included a picture here for you, Joe. This is not my picture that you were looking at. Uh, there are a lot of images of this of, of the goats' statues online, but it's quite, quite splendid. And again, at the top of this hill in this enormous park. Beautiful. 
Now, uh, as a widely domesticated species, we, of course, find goats in Indian traditions as well. Um, in Hinduism, a goat is the vehicle of both the fire god Agni and sometimes the vehicle of the solar deity Pushan. Uh, the god Daksha has the head of a goat uh, following his insult of Shiva and subsequent execution by the order of Shiva. But then Shiva shows mercy and allows Daksha to return to life with the head of the first living being he meets upon his return to life. That animal turns out to be a goat. So he didn't originally have a goat head. He no, gets no. one. Okay, I see. Yeah. Yeah, he had a more, I guess, a human head, a humanoid head. But then he lost that head uh, because he earned himself a beheading. But then right. the god shows mercy and says, all right, you can have your life back. You can have your head back. But it has to be the first head of the, 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 head of the first animal you see in the world. Is this is so he gets to go about with a goat head? Is this interpreted as a kind of curse or humiliation in the story, or or not so much? Um, I'm I'm not so sure about that because you're getting into I guess a deeper question of how is the goat perceived in 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 uh, in India and in Hindu culture. Mm-hmm. Um, I was reading about this particular tale in Nandita Krishna's Sacred Animals of India, and according to this author. The tale is often used to justify goat sacrifices as Daksha was essentially the sacrifice of Shiva, uh, you know, albeit with a pre-goat head and mm. it's, you know, execution and sacrifice, uh, trying to, you know, draw parallels there. Mm-hmm. Goats are also uh, a sacrifice to the mother goddess, uh, according to Krishna here, and sometimes uh, to Kali as well. Man, there is so much goat lore. You could have an entire Wikipedia-style goat database just for goat backstory, goat lore, goat mythology. Internet goat database, yeah, yeah. yeah. I can see that working. I mean, yeah, there's just a lot of it, and I think it comes down to you know what we've been discussing here. It's just it has been such a part of human traditions for so long. We've spent plenty of time watching goats, uh, comparing ourselves to goats, comparing our ways to the ways of goats, and then out of that all these various fanciful ideas emerge. Those ideas kind of uh, then breed with each other. And uh, we are left with all these interesting traditions of of the divine, the the demonic, uh, and everything in between. Okay, I think we have to call it for this episode, uh, just for time, but we've got more goat stuff to talk about. That's right. We'll be coming back uh, in, the, in the next episode with uh, discussions of Egyptian traditions. Uh, we'll get into occultism a little bit, goat intelligence, wars on goats. Uh, there's a lot more to talk about. Uh, but certainly in the meantime, feel free to write into us, uh, particularly if you have uh, experience with any of the or, or background in any of the, the traditions that we've uh, discussed here and would like to share more about them. Uh, if you have personal experience with goats, uh, if you have, have lived uh, uh, any part of your life among the goats, uh, you probably have insight uh, to share and we would love to hear from you. You can catch up on all our episodes in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. On Tuesdays and Thursdays, we have our core episodes. On Wednesdays, we do a short-form artifact or monster fact. On Mondays, we do listener mail. And on Fridays, we do Weird House Cinema. That's our time to set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a weird film, like The Devil Rides Out. Uh, so if you want some more discussion of, uh, of goat people, uh, I think that, that may be the only goat film we've watched uh perhaps you your memory is better than mine and you can remember another goat that's popped up uh that's the only one coming to mind but i don't know our, our back catalog is starting to get kind of long so we're we're finally reaching the point where i am forgetting which movies we've covered yeah i think this week's film will be the 90th uh film that we have looked at on weird house cinema it's been a wild ride so far yeah <laughs> but we have miles to go before we sleep a wild goat ride to nowhere yeah <laughs> Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, uh, to shed some uh, to, to shed some light on goats, to share personal experience about goats, if you are a goat herder yourself, or if you just want to get in touch and say hi, uh, any of that's fair game, you can always write us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 